0: Hello and welcome to the Biotech 2050 podcast. Biotech 2050 is a think tank chronicling the disruptions changing the biotech industry over the next several decades. Check out our website at biotech2050.com or on your favorite podcast listening platform. I'm Rahul Chaturvedi, co-founder of Biotech 2050 and today's host. I'm also the founder and CEO of Clora. Clora is a tech platform that is solving the talent crisis across the life sciences industry to help bring new therapies to patients faster. I'm excited to welcome Brad Marcus, co-founder and executive chairman of CeraVance. Thanks for joining us today, Brad. Thanks, Ronald. Nice to meet you. You too. So to kick us off, Brad, talk to us about the arc of your career, what got you interested in biotech and how you ended up at CeraVance.
1: Okay. It's a little strange, but I went to Harvard Business School and thought I would go into business. I knew nothing about molecular biology how science works, how our government funds research, none of that stuff, and wasn't that interested. But I did a leveraged buyout, believe it or not, of a shrimp processing company and did pretty well at it and things were going well. But that was a big thing in the 80s was to do leveraged buyouts. But in the mid-90s, I had at that point three sons and two of them were diagnosed with a very brutal ultra-rare genetic disease called ataxia telonyctasia, which is hard to pronounce, but it combines loss of neurons in the brain that control movement with really with immune deficiency and and a really high risk of cancer. So tough disease. And like many, many families, my wife and I started a nonprofit and I started learning some science. I had a couple PhDs tutor me very narrowly, but deeply on the science just so I could not do research, but I at least could be a smart buyer or not waste people's time. And as I learned more of the science, I also kind of became an advocate for a lot of people with severe diseases and testified before Congress a lot and all that. But all the while I kept running my food company and then in 2000, when there was a dot-com bubble, there was also a genomics bubble at the time. And it was the first sequence of the human genome sequences was coming out. And a lot of VCs wanting to put money in and academics with cool ideas and kind of a shortage of seasoned executives that knew anything about genetics. At that point, I had been very involved with positional cloning and finding the gene for my kid's disease. And I had some exposure to genetics. So I had a chance to leave the food industry and went to Silicon Valley and co-founded a company called Pearls and Sciences. It wasn't focused on my kid's disease and it wasn't even focused on brain diseases, which is what's most important to my family. But at least it was focused in science. And I could think about science all day long and pick the brains of the MDs and PhDs that worked for me. And so that's how I got into biotech. And uh, I always laugh when uh, young people are so worried about what they're picking to do right out of school, because I can tell them that you can make some really big changes halfway through your career.
0: Thanks, Brad. And out of curiosity, when you were thinking about starting up your first company, what were all the pieces that you needed to put into place to surround yourself with the right expertise given your background? And this is particularly pointed at those folks that are, you know, non-technical founders that are thinking about biotechs.
1: So to be clear, like I'm invited to be on a lot of boards these days, not because I'm brilliant, but because I've made a lot of mistakes and I can sit there and help people maybe avoid them. So I th- I would say the first with each company, hopefully each subsequent company I've started, I've gotten a little bit better, but. We started Pearlogen, you know, essentially it was a really frothy time, easy to get investors, but nevertheless, you still have to start with a strong, solid business plan. You have to have eighty or ninety percent of it figured out. If you wait till you have a hundred percent figured out, you'll never start. You know, I think the most critical thing is to be really honest about the technology, the science, and track the team that you, you know, respect for their expertise and they're complimentary to what you bring. And make sure that you're gonna have a fun ride with them because it's gonna be a hard ride, but my philosophy is if you have the right people on the bus, you know you don't have to know the exact path you're going to take. You'll make adjustments as you go, but the odds are pretty strong of your success if you have the right people. And if you make one or two mistakes in which people you pick, you have to be a good CEO and swiftly make changes. And you have to really think hard about the culture and protect that culture no matter what. But I think those are the things I learned. And believe it or not, a lot of those are transferable from industry to in industry. So I'll take a person from any industry who can really get stuff done over a very
0: deep, specialized expert in one industry if they
1: don't get stuff done,
0: and you mentioned you're on on a few boards right now. I was curious, what have you learned along the way about being a board member? you know the first time you did it versus the second and third time versus you know being a CEO and running your own company
1: the first time I was on the board, I wasn't running the company at all. It was a challenge. I wanted to push the levers, you know the CEO asked the question how would I do this? And I almost felt like saying, well, get out of the way. Let me show you, or let me do it. Let me try. Over the years, I've gotten much better at maybe just being a coach or giving my advice when it's wanted. I think first-time CEOs have a lot of things they need to learn that I can sometimes accelerate, how they manage their boards and their investors, you know, how they use their boards and what they shouldn't rely on their boards for. Those kinds of things are things you learn through trial and error that hopefully I can help CEOs with now. So it's a very interesting experiment, the CEO
0: and the board relationship. So before we jump into Cerebans, I was wondering if you could provide us a, a bit of a precursor to the overall CNS landscape and why you decided to pursue CNS indications and perhaps the challenges and opportunities that overall that therapeutic area present. Yeah, so the brain is really tough,
1: even though despite of all the cool TV shows and movies about it we don't have a lot figured out about the brain to be clear circuitry and how we get to cognition. And even something like the cerebellum, which is considered simple circuitry wise is still really complex, how it controls movement and how you learn to move. So I don't want to trivialize it, but nevertheless, we have to focus on the brain. We can't just be going after the disease areas that investors might think are easier because the world needs better treatments for brain diseases. And millions and millions of people have them and the demographics are looking bad. They're going to get worse as America keeps aging, avoiding cancer or heart disease. They're all going to end up with brain diseases. So we have to address it. And so I think the challenges, interestingly, that you face for any brain disease are very similar. So you know, my real passion is my son's disease. The two guys have uh, serious motor control problems. They're in power wheelchairs, all that. But if I really look at their disease and trying to figure out how you would address it, whether it's gene editing and gene therapy or some kind of way of correcting the circuitry, or deep brain stimulation, or some broader therapeutic that you know just helps cells stay alive, a lot of the obstacles you run into are the same ones you run into with Alzheimer's disease and Parkinson's disease. So, you know, we don't have good enough biomarkers. Every conference you have on CNS, there's like at least one or two panels about. Oh, we need more biomarkers. And I feel like saying, yeah, duh, we know that. You know, tell us about one you've got that you've discovered that's validated. But there is progress being made. And the exciting thing is, you know, whether it's neurofilament light chain or some other biomarkers coming out now, there are new measurements that are going to make running clinical trials a little bit easier. Neuroimaging has always been, I think, overhyped. It's definitely cool at conferences to see the images on the screen, very fun. But the resolution, both you know, in detail and also in time are not, not always that useful. But it is getting better. People are struggling with it and there are new technologies coming along. So, I think all those things are challenges in, in some nervous system diseases. And I think one other problem we have, which is not a science problem, is just that the way industry is, a lot of pharma executives need to take a less risky path. You know, you don't bet your career on something. And so, as a result, and investors too need to have a faster, higher probability of success and a faster return. So, people tend to avoid really novel approaches my argument would be that we need to look at other things. So in Alzheimer's disease, people focus on amyloid plaques and tau and Parkinson's disease. They focus on you know, either the dopaminergic system or on the death that's occurring, the alpha-synuclein in the substance nigra. All these things are things that have been around for decades. And yes, they're absolutely part of the story. And you know, all the companies apply all their technologies to these hypotheses, but they're not the whole story. And so I was, I've was. i always been very passionate about that. And we started CeraVance because we identified a technology that looked like it could help us identify new targets and new insights about the human brain, the mature human brain as it goes through these terrible diseases.
0: And Brad, out of curiosity, what excites you about the future of drug discovery and development as it relates to the CNS landscape?
1: Well, I think people are just being more innovative. There are model systems now that are getting better are insights people are getting from looking at the diversity of cells in the brain and not treating you know all cerebellum as cerebellum or all hippocampus as hippocampus and alzheimer's you know there are people who are looking at much higher granularity and detail and And then there are technologies we can now apply so you know with my company we're applying machine learning and and big data approaches that have come along at the same time that we've come up with the methodologies to generate the data sets so the chances to combine technologies like that and if you can pull it off build a company where you have the right mix of people with all those different diverse expertises is is a great thing i think it's really promising if you spend time with those people you do walk away more hopeful for these diseases
0: and since this is your third biotech that you founded, I'm curious what, if anything, has changed in terms of investor appetite for companies that are focusing on CNS? Good questions. So the reality
1: is that when you go raise money for CNS companies, you know, 80% of the investors out there will tell you that they like your platform and love your science. 20% will say, no, we only want to see late stage assets that are, have a really predictable news flow and will have a quick value increase you know, inflection point in the near future. will absolutely maybe compliment you on your platform and show sincere interest in your technology and and what you're doing early stage. But ultimately, they too are going to be focused primarily on what's coming out in your clinical development programs and how soon you'll have proof of concept in humans. And it's partly understandable because we don't have a lot we can really get excited about preclinically in CNS. You know, infectious disease or even cancer, you treat the tumor or the microbe with a drug and it works you kind of feel like it might work in humans. With CNS, you really have to wait, not even the animal models, you have to wait all the way until, you know, human phase two studies usually to see, did you get efficacy? So that's a a big challenge. And because of that, again, people are not really willing to take risks, but I think you're going to see more people doing that. I think also people are being inventive about trial design so that you can maybe get more information sooner than you could before.
0: Great. So Brad, with that wonderful perspective that you just shared, Let's talk about Cervants and how you went about founding the company, the underlying technology, and just your own entrepreneurial journey.
1: Yeah, so I founded Cervantance with my co-founder, is a professor at Rockefeller University and a huge investigator named Nat Heinz, a really smart guy, a member of the Academy of Sciences and his postdoc, Xiao Shu, and he developed this methodology called NetSeq. So it harnesses an really old approach called fact sorting, but with a lot of, with several innovations that allow us to apply that technique to human brain tissue and as a result, we're able to sort large numbers of nuclei from specific cell types, even from really rare cell types in the brain using frozen postmortem human brain tissue. And once we sort them, we can pull out RNA and do really deep RNA sequencing to see the expression levels of all the genes in the cell type, not just the highly expressed genes that you usually pick up when you do single cell analysis, for example. We can also do things like pull the DNA out of that specific cell type and look at, use ATAC-seq to look at where chromatin is made accessible so you can understand which SNPs people have found associated with causing that disease actually play a role in the cell type that matters in that disease, like the cells that die in hippocampus and Alzheimer's disease. So it's a really cool technology, generates really deep data sets. And then we've scaled it to a huge scale by working now with 23 brain banks around the world. Some of them are really good. Some of them are okay. But the best ones have really rich clinical data that accompanies the donor tissue sample. And we've been able to get really robust data from that. We've not only collected disease tissue from a lot of different neurological diseases, psychiatric diseases, but we've also collected a lot of control tissue from people who died of other causes and brain diseases. And in particular, we have our donor tissue samples now represent, you know, nine decades of age, from age eight to age 104. So we can also look by cell type specific way at how aging affects brain tissue too. So all these things are done not just to do cool science, but in hopes of finding targets, you know proteins that we think if you modulate them will have therapeutic benefit, so we do a lot besides just generating the data and analyzing it. We also do a lot of you know in vitro validation of that target and then in vivo validation and and come up with a really strong mechanism hypothesis that that, yes, if we can modulate this target with some modality, it'll be therapeutic at Cerevance, we do a lot with small molecule drugs because that's what we have expertise on internally, but we're really about identifying the targets, so if we can't Take a drug forward because it's not tractable by small molecule we will partner with someone like a you know a gene therapy company or a protec you know protein
0: degrader company or an antibody company to pursue that target that's what we're about and what was that process like in the early days to get so many brain banks to sign up to work with you
1: so they have pretty strict standards usually I mean it's this precious tissue you know really hard you can't get it again and again from somebody yeah. it, someone dies and it's difficult to convince a family to do and They are really good stewards of those tissue samples. And what they really want to hear is understand is that you're going to do something meaningful with that tissue sample and get new insights that could be really helpful to the world. I think we've had to build the trust and convince them that we can make a difference and and we have. So it's worked out well.
0: That's great. And so talk to us about where you are from an R&D perspective and which indications you're now pursuing.
1: So from our platform, we've identified targets and now we've advanced programs against them. Our lead program is just completed phase two in Parkinson's disease patients looking at motor fluctuations. So, you know, in Parkinson's disease, you have cells that are dying in your brain that make dopamine. So you don't make enough dopamine and then you start to lose movement. And then you take something called L-Dopa usually that your doctor gives you and it gets converted into dopamine in the brain and floods your brain with dopamine. So the good news is at least in the early days that helps you move again. But the bad news is it does a lot of other stuff that causes side effects, including a lot of unwanted movements, dyskinesias, things like that. So our idea with that LEAD program was, what if we could find a target that we would modulate with a chemical compound, but a target that was expressed only in this one part of the circuitry in the brain, so that very selectively, so that it would have all the benefits of l DOPA, of dopamine replacement, but without causing all the side effects. And so we used our platform to profile lots of different cell types in the brain. And we found one target, it's called GPR-6. It was an orphan GPCR. So it's a a protein no one had ever worked on before. So that's serious, really risky, right? If you're an investor or a pharma. But we chose it and made a compound against it that's really selective and potent and safe and tested in animals, the Parkinson's disease models, and it worked. And now it's been safe in humans. And we should have our data any day now on what happens with our phase two and whether it was effective or not. Our hope is that it's going to significantly improve motor symptoms in Parkinson's patients and have a much better side effect profile. Behind that, we have a lot of other programs and they're quite different. So to give you an example, we have a program that's going in the clinic later this year, a target that we picked that's expressed really selectively only in the microglia, the immune cells of the brain. And what that again is a novel target, but what it does is it allows us to really precisely dampen inflammation in the brain without just shutting down your inflammatory response, which you don't really want to do broadly in your body. So you know neuroinflammation is a very hot area right now in neuroscience people think that for whatever the reason you get alzheimers or parkinsons neuroinflammation makes it worse it's like a runaway process that happens in your brain if you could dampen that or slow it down you might actually slow the progression of the disease so a lot of people believe that there's some genetic evidence of that so what we're doing is we've used our platform to find a target that's selectively expressed so we can make a really precise therapeutic and so far it's looking really exciting so The platform is really generating a lot of interesting approaches
0: that no one's ever thought of before. Great. And Brad, I'm curious, given all the opportunities in CNS and how much unmet need there is, how you went about selecting, let's say Parkinson's as your first indication or any insight you have around indication selection frameworks, now this being your third biotech? Yeah. So you have a lot of different
1: things that make you pick a disease. One is the unmet need, of course. Another is how tractable it is, like how soon or how hard or easy it would be to find a target or to validate that target. Are there animal models? Are there things like that in place? And then ultimately, what's really important to investors is how quickly can you get to a point where you have uh, positive value inflection, where you've got some good news, where your odds of success look better. Not that you have to get all the way to market, but just that a lot of the risk is gone. And you know, if you can get to that point sooner, like in a small trial with a disease that's very consistent, predictable. Even if the market's smaller, that's a better thing for investors than if you want to do Alzheimer's and have to run a multi-year study with a million people and, and billions of dollars. So all those factors play in. I think ultimately you're driven by the science and what's, what makes sense scientifically. You've got to also take some risk and go where, where you know you're going to have a big difference. In the case of Saravance, because of our technology, we have the ability to look for targets that are expressed really selectively. And that's really useful if you know something about the circuitry of a disease. So in the case of Parkinson's disease, as opposed to, let's say, autism, in Parkinson's disease, neuroscientists have figured out pretty well what happens when you don't make dopamine anymore, what happens to the pathways that causes your motor symptoms and other symptoms. So we knew that if we could find a target lay in that circuit, we could fix it somehow. In other cases, like Alzheimer's, we're going to focus on the cell types that are most vulnerable and die earliest in the disease and hope that we can somehow protect them. You have to have some biology and understanding of the circuit that makes you more willing to pursue a disease. You know, we would love to pursue autism, but autism right now has a lot of different causes and it's really, really murky. We're not sure
0: how we would apply our platform to it. Thanks for sharing those insights. I'm curious, Brad, since you've done this a couple of times now, what have been the biggest learnings? Let's say if you imagine, you know, your, your first pitch for your first company versus your most recent pitch when you went out to raise for the most recent round of financing for Seravance. What has changed most in terms of your approach, the mentality with which you go in, and also your own process? To
1: be clear, if you're the CEO of a venture-backed biotech, you are always on, you are always selling. If you don't like that, it's not your, it's not your role. Get the number two job as the chief scientific officer or chief technology officer. Don't take the CEO role. That's what it's about. I was riding in the car with one of my kids in, in a long road trip, and I had numerous business calls. And after all of them, he looked at me and said, "Dad, it's all you do is pitch. Is that your whole job?" You know, but pitching really is key. And I think the other piece is, you know, all the cliches about elevator pitches. It's amazing how everybody knows about that, but a lot of people can't do it. If you only have 30 seconds, you really have to be able to get out exactly what the value proposition is. And basically, if you're talking to an investor. That thirty seconds shouldn't be about you or about your company. It should just be about how they're going to make money by investing in your company. You know why they need to invest now. why, if they don't invest now, they won't have another chance to invest or until you know the price is way too high or something. And this has to be so simple. And I've seen so many slide decks where people have you know the most amazing slide designers I've ever seen, way better than I could ever do, and amazing bubble charts and all that. But in the end, I haven't heard by the end of the story, how can I make money? You know, how can I as an investor make money? And, and people forget that. So I, I got that wrong a lot of times. And I guess it's uh you keep learning. Another mistake that maybe young CEOs make is I've been in board meetings, you know, invited to be in a board meeting or joined a board, and the first meeting I meet the CEO and they're about to do a financing and they're in the process of doing a financing, and they tell me very proudly, you know, yeah, we've pitched now 110 VCs and quite a few of them are quite interested and want to follow up and all that. And and I stopped them and say, you know, 110, you know, if you'd done your homework ahead of time and you really looked at what VCs are out there that actually can invest in your space, can invest in a company at your stage, haven't just done three other investments in the same thing area that you're doing. And, you know, if you go through all the normal filters, like you should, there will not be 110 at any given time. You know, if you're just starting a company that's got a long path ahead and you're pitching a, a fund that's a 10 year fund in year nine, you know, you're probably at the wrong place. And then the other thing is, there's this inverse relationship where the less an uh, investment firm is investing right now, the more time they have to meet with you. <laughs> so you often get those meetings easily, but they're not going to work out well. So I would argue keep your pitch simple, really clear, and do your homework ahead of time. If you really laser guide your pitch to the right investors, you'll have you know, better success than just doing a shotgun approach you look desperate when you reach out to 100 and word gets around that you've been visiting all these people and you haven't
0: gotten any traction yet. So, And Brad, to take a step back now, given your past experiences, I'm curious if there's one piece of advice that you would want to provide your younger self, what would that be? I think I've made more
1: mistakes by not doing things than by doing them. So I, I think at the end of my life, I don't consider myself... <laughs> Done. I hope I really believe my story's not over yet. And and I like to think sometimes that I haven't even decided yet what I want to do with my life. And at the end of my life, I think I will look back and probably regret more things I didn't do than things I did. So, um, you know, if you're on the fence there about starting a company, I think, you know, I tend to want to go for it. I, I think you should go for it. Maybe I'm not critical enough and analytical enough. Maybe I, I won't be as successful as a lot of people because I'm too quick to jump, but life is short and the same thing you know when i was in my 20s or 30s i was willing to work with just about anybody to make money and nowadays when i pick an opportunity i i want to make sure i'm going to be working with people who i respect and can learn from and who i'm enjoy on the ride with and and all those things matter to me but i think the biggest thing is just you know it sounds like a a nike commercial right just do it but it really is just get frustrated by people who talk about starting a company and i see them a couple years later and they're still talking about it you know Let's go for it.
0: Yeah. Great advice, Brad. Well, Brad, thank you so much for joining us today and for sharing a bit about your background and the exciting work that you and your colleagues are pursuing at Cerevance.
1: Great. Really enjoyed
0: meeting you. Thank you for listening to this episode of Biotech 2050. This episode is hosted by me, Rahul Chaturvedi. It's edited and mixed by Megan Lovering. If you enjoyed this episode of Biotech 2050, please subscribe to our podcast and leave us a review. Also follow us on Twitter and Instagram at biotech2050pod. Again, that's biotech2050pod. Until next time.